everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show's expert series, where I talk to experts in areas of interest to entrepreneurs. My guest today is April Dunford, who is a globally recognized expert in positioning and market strategy for B2B companies. Previously, April has run marketing and sales team at a series of successful technology startups and has launched more than 16 products into the market. She's also a board member, investor, and advisor to dozens of high-growth businesses and is the author of the best-selling book on positioning, Obviously Awesome, How to Nail Positioning So Your Customers Get It, Buy It, and Love It. In this episode, we will touch upon her positioning framework and how to use it. And in addition, I'll also delve into the common questions and concerns I hear from entrepreneurs when it comes to positioning their product and company. This is going to be a jam-packed episode, so you definitely don't want to miss it. And so with that, let's get started. Welcome, April. Hey, it's great to be here. (laughs) So April, I want to start off with a basic question. What is positioning the way you see it? And how can you tell if a company needs to rethink its positioning? It's not a new concept, but it is, in my opinion, a fairly misunderstood concept. I like to think about positioning as context setting for products. Context is important, particularly if it's something new we haven't encountered before. We look for clues as to what the product is all about by the context. My definition of positioning is positioning defines how your product is the best in the world at providing something or some value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, but it's because positioning is made up of a set of component pieces all put together. I I always think about it as, how do you want to position this product in the customer's mental model of products in that space that they may know about? Yeah, but it defines what the space is as well. Lately, I've been talking to people about the difference between good positioning and bad positioning. Good positioning serves as a really good starting point for a customer to kind of figure out what you're all about. It doesn't take the place of your messaging Mm -hmm. and it's not the same as a tagline or your branding, but good positioning kind of picks the customer up and places them on a road that leads to your value. Bad positioning kind of picks them up and puts them on a road that leads them somewhere else. (laughs) And then your sales and marketing team have to do the work of like, no, 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 stop pointing over there. Now I've got to get you back over here and pointed towards what we actually are. That's a good visual way of thinking about it, pointing them towards your value. Does that mean the reason a company needs to rethink its positioning or has a clue that it needs to rethink is it's because salespeople are finding that when they talk about the product, the customers are often confused and asking them questions that have nothing to do with their space or product. Would that be the indicator? So in B2B, if you're selling to businesses, like the most common sign that your positioning isn't quite working is you've got existing customers and your existing customers love it. It's amazing. But in the early phases of your marketing and sales efforts, you're just not getting that reaction at all. In fact, people are a bit confused as to why you even exist. And so for me, when I used to be a vice president of marketing, I would sit in on calls with the salespeople And you could hear the signs of it. Like the salesperson would be doing the initial part of the pitch and you could hear this confusion in the customers like, so wait, so you're like Salesforce. And the rep is like, no, we're nothing like Salesforce. What are you talking about? Let me try it again, you know? And so there's this gap between what an actual existing happy customer knows and what you're trying to communicate in your marketing and sales stuff. And that gap is usually 
caused by some kind of a problem in your positioning. Something mm. is giving those people a clue that you are something that you are not. And then your marketing is, again, having to sort of turn them around and say, no, 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 we're not a CRM. We're not a robot. We're not email. We're this other thing. And so you feel that in, you feel it in your marketing stuff too, right? Like your marketing's not performing as well as it could. You're getting these leads in and they're coming in with a preconception about what you're all about and it's not quite right. Your salespeople are doing pitches and customers are kind of confused and it's taken a lot of pitches and a lot of demos. So you'll see this sluggishness in the middle of your funnel where reps will often say things like, you know what, it takes us a bit before the light comes on. So before we get into the framework, the other thing that I see a lot of founders, especially when they have their initial just one product company, is they start with the product positioning Mm -hmm. or the company positioning, and then they go into the other. It kind of interchanges. And when you do positioning, how do you think about positioning a company versus positioning a product? I get this question a lot. I had a very particular conversation once with a founder. They had a product and they had raised a fairly spectacular amount of money to develop this product and sell this product. And the product had one name and the company had another name. Conversation I was having with the founder is, why wouldn't you just call them both the same thing? You're a brand new company, brand new in the space. I mean, at that point, they were a dozen people. Nobody knew their company or their product. And I'm like, now you're going to have to make both of those things mean something in the market. Why wouldn't you, at least at the beginning, just have the company name, the product name, and then I only have one thing to remember. I only have one thing to Google. It's easier. And the, the response from the founder was, but that's not my vision. My vision is we're Dyson Labs and we're going to have all kinds of products. So we want to make sure that people understand that, that we're not just a one-hit wonder. We're going to be cranking out all kinds of these products. So there are two things that were interesting about that. One, Dyson only has one brand. It's Dyson. (laughs) They only have one name. It's Dyson. It's the Dyson hairdryer or the Dyson vacuum cleaner or the Dyson whatever. But even Dyson doesn't call their things different things, right? They only have one brand. Secondly, this company was quite successful. They they raised some other money. They, They ultimately got acquired by Google. And I think it was an okay exit for everybody. Did they ever have another product? No. So in the end, I I think that it's very, very hard to build a brand in a market. And that takes a phenomenal amount of time, energy, and effort. And so if all you've got is one product, why would you make it hard for yourself and try to do two brands when you could get away with one? And when you get product number two, then figure out what you're going to do. That's branding, right? So when it comes to positioning, it's the same conversation I had with that founder. He's like, look, this one product is positioned for this market and these people and this stuff. Whereas we want to position the company as a maker of super innovative, a plethora of amazing products. In the work that I do, if we're a startup and we only have one product, I think the company positioning and the product positioning is the same because you don't have a plethora of products yet. You just have one. If you started having multiple products, well, then you actually have something to position. Then I have the positioning of the company potentially, and then the positioning Mm -hmm. of why do you want to do business with us? And then Mm -hmm. there's the positioning of the individual products. Well, why would you want to buy this thing for this purpose? And why would you want to buy this other thing for some other purchase? Now, even there, you get into some nuances. And by the way, we have 
plenty of examples of companies that got to extreme scale where the company position and the product positioning was exactly the same. Slack, for example, or you know, Facebook. They're essentially one product companies, even though, yeah, they might have some other ancillary products kicking around or whatever. But, uh, you know, we've, we've managed to do this at scale and there's plenty of examples of it. Even when you get into multiple products, sometimes what you've got is a lead product and the other products are like add-ons or they're things that you sell afterwards. And so for the purposes of positioning, you may still want to have the company positioning strongly tied to essentially the lead product. This was Salesforce for the longest time, even when they had many products for the longest time, they were really just selling you CRM first and you really weren't interested in using their marketing or their service or any of the other stuff that they had until you had the CRM. So if you went to the website, it was all about the CRM. They weren't trying to sell you anything else because you wouldn't buy anything else until you bought the CRM first. And then once you're a captive customer, then we're going to worry about positioning all the other things we have and how we position those is, hey, you've already got this and it's super easy to just bolt this thing on. So why don't you bolt it on? So we have lots of examples of that too where there's companies with multiple products, but they're not necessarily positioning the company as a provider Mm. of multiple products. They're really saying, we do one thing, and then once we get you, we'll cross-sell you all the other things we've got. Then you've got the extreme version where, you know, I'm IBM, right? I've got tons of products. I've got five divisions, and each division sells to different kinds of customers and different kinds of solutions. In that case, what you have is kind of cascading positioning. Again, if I took IBM as an example, and I I know this one because I worked there for a while. So at IBM, there's the positioning that says, why would you want to do business with us? And, and our positioning was all around, look, like we're one of the few vendors in the land that does hardware, software, and services. And this is the magic that happens if you get all three of those things from one vendor. So we would talk about that. In every sales pitch we did, we would start with, why IBM? And then the product I had was inside software group. So then we would do a little bit on, why would you buy just software from IBM? And when we talk about how we specialized in middleware and why it's very important to have your middleware all play nicely together and our philosophy of openness and open standards. And then I was in the database division. Then we would say, so why would you buy a database from IBM. Well, you know, it turns out we invented the relational database and here's all our patents and our research and here's how much database stuff we sell. We're actually the biggest database provider in the land. And then and then there was my product underneath that, <laughs> which was the, the this thing I was selling was the information integrator platform. So, you know, so then we get down to mine and it's like, well, why would you buy a thing like this from us? And the reasoning was... Look, if that product was better positioned without the context of IBM and software group and the database group, if none of those things adds value to my sales pitch, then why is this a product in our portfolio at all? Why wouldn't we just spin it out and have it be its own company? If it's more valuable outside, let's just get rid of it. And so very much the reason you bought my product wasn't just because it was my product. It's because it played well with IBM databases. It played well with IBM middleware. And you had the assurance that you could do hardware and services around that thing as well. That's how we did the whole pitch. So generally, it's a bit of a cascade. You go company and then you go down to the products. Okay. I have some hypothetical questions in that, but before we get into the sort of Q&A from founders that I've got, which I have a list off for you, I do want to touch upon the framework. 
So could you give an overview on the framework that is used for doing B2B positioning at the product level? It works the same whether it's the product or the company. And and I'll tell you how it differs in the methodology, at least the way I see it, because I've used the same methodology, whether we're positioning a product, a division, the whole company. We can think about positioning as being broken up into five component pieces. So the five pieces are competitive alternatives, unique capabilities, value that you deliver for customers, your target segmentation, who are the customers I'm actually going after? And then the last thing is market category, which is a, a bit like saying, what's the context I'm going to position this thing in? Or what is the market that I intend to win? So in my methodology at a very high level, it starts with understanding that there are those five component pieces. The next thing you need to understand is that the component pieces have a relationship to each other. They are not fully independent. So if I pick something like value, the the differentiated value that my product delivers to customers is completely dependent on my differentiated features. The value doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from your differentiated features. But my differentiated features are only differentiated if I compare them to a competitor or an alternative. And so these things are all really same with like my best fit customers. These are the people that care the most about my differentiated value. So those things are related. And even market context, if I'm thinking about market category, the best market category to position my product in is the market category that helps make my differentiated value obvious to my target customers. So these things are all related. So the first thing to understand is there's five pieces. The second thing is that the pieces all relate to each other. And then the third thing is that in my methodology, one of the things I realized is that if you want to figure out the best answer for those five component pieces, and they are all deeply tied to each other, then you actually have to work through them in a very particular order. So my methodology is all about, we need to start somewhere and then work through the other pieces. Now, in my methodology, we're starting with competitive alternatives. And I came to that conclusion, it's kind of based on the jobs to be done work, really. So Mm -hmm. I, I spent a lot of time reading Clayton Christensen and talking to people that knew a lot about jobs to be done. And so that kind of influenced my thinking on the starting point of this thing. And so the starting point, importantly, is not competitors. The the starting point is competitive alternatives. So you have to think about it as you're out in the market, you're selling things to your customers. If you didn't exist, what would your customer be doing? Hmm. And sometimes that's another product that looks just like you, but sometimes it's, I would just use a spreadsheet or I would just hire an intern to do it, or I wouldn't do anything because I don't even know the problem exists, (laughs) or I would just paint a paper manual process. So we need to understand fully, first step is competitive alternatives. So what's the status quo in the account, which may be paper and pen or interns, whatever. And then when the customer does decide to do something different, who else ends up on a short list? Because this is what you got to beat. You got to beat status quo and you got to beat everybody else that the customer is looking at. So once you understand that, then you can say, okay, this is my starting point. This is where customers start. And then we say, all right, well, what have I got that they don't have? 
And that's my list of differentiated capabilities. Once I have that, then I can map those capabilities to value. So I can say for each capability, so what for customers? Why does a customer care? And then importantly, I want to theme that value into two or three value themes because customers can't remember a thousand points of value, right? So I've got two or three value themes. Once I have that, then I can say, all right, that's my differentiated value. Who cares a lot about that? Or specifically, what are the characteristics of a target account that makes them care a lot about that differentiated Mm. value? That's how I get to a best fit customer. That's essentially how we define a best fit customer. And then once I have that, now I have value and customers. So I could say, okay, of all the markets I could position this thing in, what is the best one that makes this value most obvious for these target customers? We start with alternatives and we work our way through the other pieces. I have to say, I've used your framework and I think it's absolutely golden. I think it really helps clarify positioning and it takes out so much confusion out of positioning exercise. I love it. It took me a long time to figure it out. I'll tell you that. And the thing that really frustrated me when I started is that we talked about positioning, right? And no one had a way to do it. It just drove me crazy. I was like, we're just making this stuff up. And most of the people, the smart marketers that I talked to had some kind of a thing they were doing, but it kind of boiled down to trial and error. It was like, we're going to come up with a positioning candidate and then we're going to test it in the market. And if it works, great. If doesn't, we'll go back and do it again. Then that was kind of the best thing we had when I started. And that just bothered me. I was like, that can't be how it works. There has to be a more systematic way for us to do this that's better than just trial and error because that takes a long time. And so eventually, this is what I came up with. So again, I don't know if it works with B2C, but I know it works with B2B because I've done it. And I think the other mistake that I know I used to make before I used your framework was what you mentioned, which is saying, how do we differ from our competitors? And what's the white space we can own because of that differentiation? But what that does is it doesn't take into account the other alternatives. That's exactly it. Particularly when you're in startups, most of the time your fiercest competition is status quo. It's whatever they're doing. And that's a spreadsheet, an intern, a manual process. We're using our accounting package that was never designed to do that thing, but it kind of sort of does it. Like the research on this is stunning. If you look at B2B software purchases, when a customer starts a purchase process, 40% of the time that purchase process ends in no decision. No decision, meaning status quo, meaning we didn't pick any of you. We just decided to keep doing the thing that we're doing. So if you're not considering that in your competitive set, (laughs) like 40% of the time, that's if you had a competitor that you lost to four deals out of 10, you'd be taking them pretty seriously, wouldn't you? Yeah. And all that money that you're putting into your messaging, your marketing is just missing the mark completely. Well, and this is the really dangerous thing, right? If I don't consider that, then I fall into a trap of orienting my positioning around something that maybe doesn't matter all that much. So I get it quite often where a company comes to me and says, yeah, okay, we've got this thing and it's amazing. And I say, who do you compete with? And they give me this list of three or four little companies in the Valley. And I'll say, oh, that's amazing. Well, you know, and how are you different? And they'll say, well, people choose us for ease of use because these things, it takes 29 clicks to do a thing. And with us, it takes one. And then I'll say, but have you ever actually lost a deal to any of those companies? Like they look pretty small. 
And they'll say, well, no, actually we haven't lost any deals. And I'm like, well, wait a second, but you lose deals, right? And I say, yeah, oh, we, but we only lose deals when the company just can't decide or they can't whatever. So if you didn't exist, what would these customers be doing? And they said, well, they'd be using a spreadsheet or they'd be using an intern. And you're like, okay, so you're out there messaging that the reason companies should pick you is for ease of use. Like, you think you're going to be yeah. Excel on ease of... You think you're going to beat the intern on ease of use? No way. If there's one thing the intern beat you on, it's ease of use, right? It's like, yeah. it's like, it's like dude, fill out the spreadsheet. It's done, right? Like, like it's easy. <laughs> but instead, if you really understood that, you could say, well, what can't the intern do, right? The, the intern quits on you. The intern makes mistakes, right? The intern... Uh, can't do complicated math. The intern doesn't understand scale. the profile of a customer. The intern doesn't scale very well. Same with yeah. Excel, right? Like there's like there's all kinds of things that I can't do in Excel. I can't have a customer profile yeah. and refer back to a customer profile. But it, the first step in this is realizing that that's actually my competition. I got to beat the intern. I got to beat Excel if I'm going to get a deal done. And then, oh yeah, like maybe I got to beat one or two other competitors, but maybe half the time I don't even have any real competitors. Other than other than just interns and, and office software. Now that we hopefully have given the audience an overview of the framework and, and how it works, I want to get into the specifics, the practicalities of actually doing positioning. So the very first question is, typically you want to get all the right people in the company together and do some sort of workshop and ideation and brainstorming to get some of these framework steps answered. So based on the experience you've had, who are the people that need to be involved in doing positioning? So positioning, if you think about it, is kind of a team sport. People will ask me who owns positioning and I'll say like the executive team owns positioning. You know, marketing might be the steward of positioning, but marketing doesn't get to make a decision and say, hey, you know what? We used to think of ourselves as a database, but now we're a business intelligence tool because I think that positioning is better. So everybody in the team, please just do that now. Like, no, your CEO would fire you. Like, you're not allowed to make that decision. So if we're going to look at positioning and potentially shift it, we need to make sure we've got everybody together because it impacts the way we sell. It impacts the product roadmap. It impacts a lot of things. So generally what you want is representation from folks that, that see customers at different points in the journey. I've got sales, marketing, product, customer success. I need the CEO there, ideally. I need anybody else on the executive team that cares a lot about are we a database or a data warehouse kind of thing. So we have to get everybody together to look at it. So two things to think about. One, I got to get everybody together. But two, once I've got them together... We cannot just get the gang together and brainstorm some stuff because if we go to do that, then this will become a war of opinions. And let me tell you, yeah. marketing never wins that war ever. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sometimes, usually the CEO wins. Sometimes sales wins because they're like, do you want to sell stuff? And everyone goes, mm -hmm, yeah, we do. <laughs> in, fact, our, yeah. in fact, our salaries depend on that. And so sales says, okay, we're doing it this way. So we can't just walk in with no structure for the exercise. So we need to get the gang together, but we need to follow a structured exercise that takes as many of the opinions out of it. So again, in my methodology, I developed this thing as a working vice president of marketing that had to get that gang together. And then it was like, okay, now that we're together, what are we going to do? And I've got a bunch of really opinionated, strong 
will egocentric people here. I got to get everybody together and it can't just be, well, I think people like our product for this reason. So therefore that's it. <laughs> you know, instead it's like, well, how can we do this as objectively as possible? And so yep. the starting point of saying, we're going to talk about competitive alternatives is a neat trick because that's hard to argue with. And that is just kind of facts. And if we're selling with a sales team, we know the answer to that question. We know what status quo is in most of our accounts, and we know which competitors we bump into in deals. And that just kind of is what it is. So we stick that stake in the ground and say, that's what we got to beat. And the rest of it is just kind of facts. What are the features that we have that are differentiating? Not your pet feature, not the thing that took you the longest to build, not the thing that we're all in love with, Like, but all the other competitors have too. It's what yep. have we got that's actually different because that's all the customer cares about. And if I take those differentiated features and then translate them to value, that's my differentiated value. It doesn't come from anywhere else. We don't get to just make it up. We don't get to yep. invent it. The only place our differentiated value can come from is from differentiated features. And the only way we can get a, a list of differentiated features is to understand differentiated from what? <laughs> so if we do it this way, then it kind of is what it is. And it takes a bit of the, you know, who yells the loudest in the room out of it. And we can have a debate over what's differentiated or what isn't. And we often do, but then we're going to agree and we're all going to get alignment. So the key thing is we get everybody together. We work through the pieces. We have a little argument about it. Probably there's a little bit of fighting, but then we're all going to commit. We're all going to agree. And then what have we got? Now we've got the entire executive team in agreement and alignment around here's who we compete with. Here's how we're different. This is the value for customers. Here's who we're going after. This is the market we're going to win. There is great power in having the whole company clear and aligned on that. And everyone's pushing towards the same goal. Most of the companies I've worked in, the problems we've had have come down to kind of a misalignment on the team around one of these component pieces. So I'll give you an example. I worked at this company and we sold enterprise CRM. That was our thing. And, and in the market, there was a giant company called Siebel that was 2 billion revenue publicly traded and they were the kings of enterprise CRM. So unwittingly, we were positioning ourselves directly against them and we couldn't meet them. Like every time yeah. we got into a deal, we were competitive with them and the customer would say, how are you better? We had two things though. One was we were totally desperate for deals. So if you ask us for a discount, we drop the price. So we're cheaper, right? <laughs> but you know, big enterprise deals, they don't care that much about price. What they really care is, is the thing going to work? So we had that, that would get us the occasional deal. But the thing we really had was we had this differentiated feature and it was the ability to model relationships in a kind of different way. Let's work through the pieces. We understood who our competitive alternative was. Well, it was clear. Every deal we were in, we only had one competitor. It was that. The status quo was do nothing and not use any CRM at all, which was a reasonable thing we had to beat as well. But most of the companies that came to us had already decided they're going to go. And if they weren't going to pick us, they were going to pick Siebel, which was a very safe choice. So that was our competitor. What did we have that was differentiating? Pretty much nothing except for this one feature, right? So we had this ability to do this model the relationships differently. So what's the value of that? Yeah. We didn't know. So all we did was pitch that feature. So every deal we would go in and they'd say, show us how you're different. And we'd say, well, we got this thing and it demoed really good. Like it looked amazing. And the, the, the UI on it was cool. And so we'd show this thing and the customer would go, hey, that looks pretty cool. What do you use that for? And we'd say, anything you want. <laughs> 
what the value is. We don't know. Because we weren't consciously thinking about it. How we got unstuck from this was eventually we sold a deal to a big investment bank. And the big investment bank went crazy for this feature. And they explained to us that in their sales process, this ability to map a relationship that had nothing to do with a company, but had to do with people that sit on a board together, people that belong to the same golf club, people that used to work together, but they don't work at the same company anymore. Being able to model those kinds of relationships were actually really, really critical to their sales process. Then we understood the value. So the value became, hey, you can map all these loose connections that have nothing to do with where the person works, which you can't, you literally couldn't do in any CRM at the time. You still can't do it in any CRM. So you can match all of that. And that's going to drive more business. And you know, in in investment banking, there's this thing called reason to call. And so it it was going to give you a reason to call. And so we got really good at articulating that. Now let's follow the process. What's the value? It's that. Who cares a lot about that? Well, as far as we could tell, it was investment bankers and we didn't really know anybody else that did. So then we were like, so therefore, what is the market we intend to win? So now we're at market category. Are we enterprise CRM? Well, not really. Because right now what we're saying is we're just selling investment banks. So maybe what we are is CRM for investment banks. Now, that's different positioning. That may not sound like a big change on the surface, but it was a massive change for the business. Like we thought about it internally for months where we were like, wait a second, does that mean we're not selling to anybody but investment banks? And we raise money. Our investors are going to be pissed off if we're just going to do this little thing. In fact, we went to the board. The board hated it. The board's like, we invested in you to like kill Siebel. And now you're saying you're going to be this little lifestyle business in this tiny little segment. How many investment banks are there and how are you ever going to make money? And so yeah. the way we got around that is we said, look, we're not going to just sell to investment banks for everybody. That's not how this is going to work. We're going to go right now, The only place we know we've got a real edge against our big competitor is investment banking, and we've proven we can win a deal there. So we're going to focus on investment banking, and that's going to give us an advantage in a couple ways. If we position ourselves as CRM for investment banking, we're signaling to the investment bank that we're for them. We're going to get on more short lists because now it's hard for us to get there. We're going to get on more short lists. We might even have a bank call us instead of us having to figure out how to go to a bank. And we're going to make this differentiation, the center point of everything we talk about in the sales call. And we think we can win more deals that way. Now, once we've sold a bunch of investment banks and we're doing good investment banking, that gives us permission to sell to other divisions inside the bank. And some of these banks have retail parts. So then we're going to get into retail banking and then we're going to shift the positioning and we're going to be not CRM for investment banking, we'll be CRM for banking. And then once we win that, a reasonable amount of those deals, then we're going to widen it out more. That'll give us permission to get into insurance because lots of retail banks are doing stuff in insurance as well. So that'll give Mm. us a way to get into insurance. Then we're going to be a CRM for financial services. And so we mapped out how the positioning was going to evolve over time. And then once we're CRM for financial services, well, heck, man, that is a giant market. By then, we'll be a giant company. And then we can go back to being CRM for enterprise because by then, we'll be so big, we're going to kick those Siebel guys in the butt. And that's how we're going to do it. So that's how we convinced the board to do it. So we said, okay, that's how we're going to do it. And I'm telling you, that shift in positioning was absolutely transformative to the business. We went from saying, oh, we're CRM for everybody big to saying we're CRM for investment banks. It completely changed the conversation with the customer. So we go in, the investment banks would call us. 
we get into the meeting and we're like, hey, we're CRM for investment banks. And they're like, that's cool. But don't you compete with Siebel? And we'd say, oh, Siebel. We love those guys. We love them. What an amazing company. We're so respectful of them. Like they're so big, 2 billion revenue and 9 million customers and blah, blah, blah. They're the world's greatest general purpose CRM for call centers and manufacturing plants and retailers. And I don't even know what, but not for you, Wolf of Wall Street. Your business is not like everybody else's. You're not running a call center here, are you? You're running a really specific thing. And you know what you need? Specific features, man. Let me show you this thing. (laughs) And I would show them this feature with the reason to call and blah, blah, blah. And and we just cut Siebel out of the deal right from the beginning. So we went from doing a couple million revenue to doing 80 million revenue in a little bit over a year, just selling investment banks. Like we never even got out of investment banking. We were selling so much and we were making so much money. It was crazy. And then the end of that story is Siebel came and acquired us for $1.7 billion. April, I honestly think that case study is such a good case study because the number one problem I see when we do positioning is this constant tension between what we are today and what we want to be, right? Right. I have had one use case where like, well, we sell to SMB, but we're we're putting all this stuff in our roadmap because we really want to go up market to enterprise. Right. Right. Or we're selling to the recruiting department of a university, but actually our plan is to basically be like the platform for the entire student journey. How do we position it? Right. So there's this constant struggle on where they want to go and where they are. And and people think like they're going to set the positioning and forget it. Right. Like we're going to stamp it once and that's it. And we can't change it. And that's crazy. I mean, look at companies all over the land. The positioning changes all the time. Salesforce is a great example. Do we think of Salesforce as CRM? Yes, they do do CRM, but they do all this other stuff and their platform as a service and blah, blah, blah. Look at Amazon. Do we think of them as just a bookseller anymore? No, you're going to add stuff to your product and it's going to change over time because It's not just your product that's changing, it's the whole market that's changing. Your competitors are changing and new people are coming in and out of the market. And so it's natural for our positioning to evolve. And just because where we want to go is this particular thing, we got to sell what we have on the truck right now. And then we're going to check in on the positioning every six months or so. And we're going to say, look, are the competitors different? Are our capabilities different? Therefore, does our value need to be different? Therefore, is the market we can win different? And when we check on that, we're naturally going to evolve it over time. And that's okay. The other question that I get asked a lot is, should we create a category? We think we should create a category. Our positioning should be a new category. What do you say about that? I'm pretty negative about category creation for the most part. What we know about startups is the vast majority of startups that attempt to create a category when they start out fail. And they either fail to create the category at all, or they are successful in creating the category, but they fail to win the category because they get beat by fast followers. Like Google was not the first search engine. The reason we don't use Ask Jeeves is because Google was a fast follower. The reason we don't use MySpace is because they lost that category to Facebook, right? Nobody knows what a creative MP3 player is. It's because (laughs) Apple came in later. What happened to RIM and BlackBerry? Apple did, right? So the majority of companies that we see 
even if we think they're category creators now, they did not start that way. And so it is actually pretty rare. So when I was writing my book, I went looking for examples of companies that essentially created a category and then went on to win the category. And it was very, very hard to find examples. So the one example that I put in the book was Eloqua. And what's interesting about that example is technically... I'm not sure they created the category as much as the category emerged and they emerged with it. And so they did a very good job of spotting what was, in my opinion, an emerging category and surfing that wave as it went along. Now, once you get bigger, you have the ability to essentially redefine your category because you are so dominant in it. You can push the boundaries of it and change what it looks like. And sometimes you can take your leadership in one category and use that to create a new category that you then take leadership in. So when I was at IBM, we created a category and I went through that process and it was amazing, but I have no idea how I would have done that if I didn't have millions and millions of dollars of budget and a great big team and my existing market presence to give me credibility to actually do it. I think there's a lot of misinformation about category creation. And I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about the difference between a category is emerging and people are fighting for leadership in it and one of them wins. And then they say, oh, they created the category. These things come in waves. And right now it's trendy for people to talk about category creation. But I actually think that category creation In some instances, you are forced to do it because no existing category really works to do the job of putting a customer on a road that leads to your value. And in those cases, you're going to have to come up with something new. So if I give you an example, like I've worked with in the last couple of years, I've worked with about 150 companies that we've done positioning exercises Of that 150, I would say six or seven ended up essentially defining a new category. But if there's an existing category that you could use, then that is 10,000 times easier to get initial traction because you don't have to educate people on what the category is all about. So it's a bit like this. I could say I'm CRM for investment banks. And you know what that is. I don't have to say anything else. You know what CRM is? You're an investment bank, so you get that. And all you got to do is prove to me why that patch is underserved by the market leader and I got something better for that particular sub-segment. Category creation is, is different. It's like coming in and saying, you know what I am, people? I'm a flu flummer. And, and everyone's <laughs> like, you've told me nothing. What's yeah. a flu flummer? And you're going, I'm glad you asked. And then what I have to do is sell the problem. I got to sell the problem. I got to convince you there's a problem because if you knew there was a problem, then there would be a category of solutions to solve it. But you don't. That's why we need a whole new category. And I'm going to say, look, there's email and it does this and there's chat and it does this and there's team collaboration and it does this. And then there's this other thing you want to do, right? Yeah. Mm. So, and there's no solution that does that. So we're going to call that flu flummer. That's what we call it. And so now we're going to sell you that. And so the trick with that is I got to have a lot of money and patient investors to make that thing a thing because that's going to take years. And then once it becomes a thing in the minds of companies, then what you've got is the emerging category situation where companies know what a flu flummer is. They don't necessarily know who the leader in flu flummers are yet, but they know that it's a thing. That means at that moment, that market is going to get absolutely overrun with fast followers. And, And their investors are brand new and your investors are tired. 
because you've been at this for seven years and their investors are brand new and they're like, go, go, go. We don't care if you acquire customers and it costs a hundred bucks every time, like just go. And so, and that's why it's so hard to hold on to a category, even after you've created it. I think the people that do talk about category creation a lot, they use terrible examples. They use Salesforce as an example. And it's like, you know what, dude, they were a niche play in an existing category up until they were 300 million revenue. No companies get that size. And then, yeah, after that, they're pushing the boundaries and now they're creating categories all over the place. Yeah, but you can't do it. You that does 1 million revenue, 10 million revenue, 30 million revenue. You can't do that the same way they do. So uh, I think it's irresponsible. A lot of the stuff that I hear about category creation is they're saying, look at Netflix, look at Apple, look at whatever. And it's, dude, we're not Netflix here. If you looked at what Netflix did... They were positioning themselves against Blockbuster. They weren't trying to create a new category. They were saying, we're just like Blockbuster, except the movies come to you. I think you've said it in in maybe different words, but category creation works when you basically put a label on something that people are thinking, your customer is already thinking about, and you've given it now a name. That's the other thing I see a lot too, is people say, oh, we're creating a whole new category. I had a guy come the other day and he says, oh, we're creating a whole new category and we're uh, social media monitoring for agencies. And I'm like... That's not a new category. And he says, but there isn't one of those. I'm like, yeah, but what you are doing is leveraging what we already know about social media monitoring and saying, look, there's an underserved piece of this market. And yeah, there isn't like there was no CRM for investment banks before we showed up either. But you know what CRM is and that's what makes it easier. So I don't think human layer security is a category creation exercise necessarily. It's they're a niche play in the security software market. Now, people don't like that because they think niche means small. And I'm sure that market is enormous in the same way that people didn't like it when we said we were CRM for investment banks. They're like, well, that's a niche thing and you won't make any money. But, you know, $1.7 billion later, I disagree. So there are niche markets that are massive, massive. And and I don't see why. And and again, people are like, well, you got to create a new market. Otherwise, it's not big. That's baloney. There's giant markets all over the place. Security is a great example. The security is such a massive market. It's trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And there's all kinds of places around there completely untouched. Yep. No, I think that's, that's... So basically what you're saying is for you, categories like something that doesn't exist at all, but these variations of categories that exist are really niches. I've got a thing and it's a platform for revenue acceleration. What's that? I have no idea. But this is what Drift is doing. Drift is trying to make revenue acceleration mean something. It sounds like a value proposition to me. I don't think it sounds like a statement of the category they're in, but that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to turn that into a thing that is a category of software and they're going to be the platform for that. And maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. The previous thing they were attempting to do was conversation. They tried to turn that and and then then abandon it. I think we've touched upon a lot of different parts of positioning. Is there any last minute advice that or tips that you would give to entrepreneurs based on where you see most companies struggle for positioning? For most startups, the positioning is kind of a, a, a default thing. And it comes from what we intended to build in the first place. We wake up in the morning, we're like, you know what sucks? Email sucks. So we're going to build better email. And we build the thing, we get it out of the market, we add things, we remove things. Meanwhile, the whole market is changing and chat becomes a thing and team collaboration becomes a thing. And there's all these other things. And you fast forward a couple of years and maybe your email isn't actually best positioned as email. 
maybe it's maybe it's actually closer to chat. Maybe it's closer to collaboration. Maybe it's closer to something else. And generally what happens is the startups won't think about it because they're like, well, we're email. What else can we be? We're email people and we built some email and, you know, they've never kind of opened their mind to the idea that it's possible we could position it in a different way and it might mm. be easier for customers to figure it out. I think the first thing for folks to do is take a step back and think about, we could actually shift this. So just be open to the idea that we could maybe shift it. And then if you are going to go look at it and attempt to do something with it, again, like we can't just all get in a room and brainstorm our way out of this. We need to follow a process where we can get the team together and work through something that for as much as we can takes the opinions out of it so that we get something that's objectively good. I think that's a good solid advice at the end. I hope uh, everyone who's listening got a lot out of it. I know I did. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Could go on forever with you, April. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate uh, the insights that you shared on this really important topic. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.